You are tuning into the True North Church Podcast. Our prayer is that you would be inspired and encouraged by today's message. For more information about True North Church, please visit us online at truenorthak.org. Well, for those of you that don't know, my name is Rob. I am one of the pastors on staff. I get the privilege of bringing part two in our word today. But before I jump into that, if you're here with me in person, can you welcome our online community with me as we live stream this gathering? So whether you're here in person or you're watching on live stream, I also want to highlight that our times are changing in a couple of weeks, okay? So if you're here in person, you either get to wake up earlier or sleep in a little bit later. But this 10 o'clock start's either going to become a 9.30 or an 11 o'clock start. The nice thing is for you guys, if you come at your normal time, you just grab a coffee and wait to the next gathering. Okay, so you'll be okay. So, but just be aware of those time changes coming up. So, all right, let's dive into part two of our series called Daring Faith. And I want to just start by saying I love the title of this series. Because often, as Christians, I think we say we have faith, and it can become this thing that we know that we have, and it can become almost ordinary. But we don't want to have ordinary faith. We want to have daring faith. Faith that says to each other, I dare you. Look at your neighbor and say, I dare you. I double dog dare you. Do they still say that today or is that just for those of us old enough to remember the Christmas story movie, right? But here's what we want to say to each other as Christians. I dare you to believe what God is saying. I dare you to trust God for the needs that you have. I dare you to follow God into all that he has for you. We want to have daring faith. Now, as a pastor, sometimes, I'm going to just, uh, I'm going to be honest with you here for a minute. As a pastor, sometimes, I feel like when people hear us preach on faith, they say, well, that's easy. You're a professional Christian, okay? And what I mean by professional Christian is not a better Christian. It just means I'm literally paid Monday to Friday to be a Christian, so to speak, right? And I think some people say, your job is to have faith, so that's different for you. And I remember when I was a missionary, my wife and I were missionary for 20 years, we used to come home and we used to tell these stories of things God would do. And people would say, yeah, yeah, that, that happens over there, but it doesn't happen here. And I want to start today by dispelling that myth by telling you two stories of a father and a son. And the father was born into a home that could only be described as hell on earth. It was a home that was filled with abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, every type of abuse you can think of. And God was nowhere near this home in terms of the family didn't go to church. They didn't talk about God. They didn't know God. In fact, the only time the name of Jesus was mentioned was when they were cussing each other out. And this man grew up and he decided to escape this upbringing through a pretty common way that people escape an upbringing like this through drugs and alcohol. And he began to pursue that path. And as he did, eventually though, at some point, Jesus showed up in his life and radically saved him. But because of his history, he continued, even after salvation, even after coming to know Jesus, even after becoming a pastor, he continued to struggle with anxiety and other mental health issues. In fact, most of his adult life, he struggled with it. But in the midst of that struggle, God used him. God used him to share the gospel and see people come to Jesus. God used him to see other people rescued like he was rescued. God used him to see people find freedom even when he himself was still asking God for freedom in certain areas of his life. 
And God also gave that man a son, and that son grew up in a completely different environment because that man changed his home from what he grew up in. And the son grew up in a blessed environment. The son grew up where there was love and kindness and gentleness. The son grew up in a home that not only knew God, they worshiped God, they loved God, they went to church, they were instilled with the truths of God. And that son grew up and also began to follow the Lord and got to go on uh, and serve God in ministry for many years as well. And in the same way, like his father, he saw God use him to see people come to know Christ. He saw God use him to see people set free from what they needed rescuing from. He saw God use him in ways to change people's lives and situations. And the reason I tell you those two stories is because hopefully somewhere in between those two stories you see where you are. Because daring faith is for all Christians. Daring faith does not matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you grew up with. Daring faith doesn't matter what you think your future looks like from where you are today. Daring faith doesn't think, oh, wait, you didn't go to Bible school? Well, you can't do this. Daring faith doesn't say, hey, you've only known Jesus for a month? Oh, you've got to wait longer. Daring faith says you're not even leading a life group? No. Daring faith is simply when believers will say to God, God, Dare me to follow you. Dare me to trust you. And that's what this series is about. How do we have not ordinary faith, but daring faith? And I say that to encourage you, wherever you are today, whatever reason brought you to church today, you are in a place where you can walk out of here with daring faith, with faith that says, I'm actually a little bit scared because God dared me to trust him today at church. And it doesn't matter where you're at right now. It doesn't matter, again, what you think your past was or what you think your future is. What matters is that you say yes to God when he says, hey, I'm gonna dare you to have faith in me. I'm gonna dare you to put your trust in me. I'm gonna dare you to put your health needs in me. I'm gonna dare you to put your relationship needs in me. I'm gonna dare you to put your finances in my hands. That's why we're doing this series because I truly believe All Christians are supposed to live a daring faith life. And daring faith isn't ordinary. Daring faith doesn't look like everybody else does. Daring faith looks different. And daring faith sees different things happen. And the second, the subtitle of this series is called The Keys to Miracles. You see, daring faith sees miracles happen. Daring faith sees God move on behalf of those who step out and say, I believe. And today we're looking at uh, the keys to miracles in terms of how Jesus can take a little and turn it into more than enough. On your worship guide, by the way, uh, hopefully you got a worship guide on your way in, you can take notes. But at the top here, it says the title, it says part two, how faith in Jesus turns a little into a lot. I want you to circle a lot, don't cross it out, and then actually write more than enough. Because it's not just that God wants to turn a little into a lot. God wants to turn a little into more than enough. And we're looking today at the story uh, of Jesus feeding a group of 5,000 men. And this story is found in all four Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books uh, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the recordings of Jesus' life on earth. And all four of them tell some stories, his birth, his death, his resurrection. But this is the only miracle that all four tell them. 
all four tell in their gospel. So we know that this miracle stood out to the disciples. So they got to see Jesus do everything. This is the only one that all four of them said, oh, I remember that, and the people I'm writing my letter to need to hear that. So we know it's important. And here's the thing with miracles. Jesus doesn't just do miracles to show off, okay? Jesus does miracles to reveal something to us. Jesus does miracles and asks us to pray for him to still do miracles today to reveal himself maybe to those who don't know him or to reveal a truth about himself to those of us who do. So we're going to look at the story and say, Jesus, what do you want to show us about how to live with daring faith that the disciples thought was so important it made all four of the gospels? So let me give you the story really quickly. And by the way, we're, we're working mostly out of Mark 6, but it is in the other three Gospels. But uh, the story is this. Jesus, <coughs> pardon me, Jesus uh, has just crossed the sea and he's kind of gone out into the wilderness. He was actually taking his disciples, hoping for a little bit of time alone, and the crowds heard that he was going out there. So what did they do? They said, oh, Jesus probably needs some time to himself. No, they said, let's go get him. And they followed him out there. And they followed out, it says 5,000 men followed Jesus out there. There's probably some women and children there too, but I think a miracle of feeding 5,000 is a big enough miracle to impress me. I don't know about you. But there's 5,000 people they follow out. And Jesus, of course, it says he has compassion on the crowd and he begins to teach them. And then it says, late in the day, he was still teaching them. And that right there is highlighted in every pastor's Bible. Okay, just so you know, late in the day, I'll still be teaching you, right? You okay to be here late in the day? No, you want to be out on time? All right, we'll go, keep going. So it says, late in the day, Jesus is still teaching them, and they're far away from anything, and the disciples come up to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, we're far away from everything. It's getting late in the day. The people are getting hungry. Send them away to go get some food. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you feed them. Do you imagine being the disciples? I don't know if they had a bag lunch or not, but 5,000 people. They're, it's late in the day. They're not close to any fast food restaurants. They're beyond what Uber is going to deliver to, right? And Jesus says, you feed them. Now, if I was there, I would have thought to myself, Jesus, that is an unsolvable problem. That is not something that I can do. And that is the first key to seeing a miracle is that we admit I have an unsolvable problem. We admit, Jesus, I hear what you're asking me to do. I see what you are wanting from me, but I do not have the ability to solve that problem. And what's interesting is in a story like this one, it's so obvious that they didn't have enough food to feed 5,000. But what I find interesting is how often do those of us, even as believers, who know how powerful God is, who have heard the stories of how good God is, we still hesitate to admit that we have an unsolvable problem. We still hesitate sometimes to say, Jesus, we need you to help with this thing. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why sometimes we feel like as Christians, well, we have to have everything together and so I can't present any problems to Jesus. I can't tell my life group to pray for this because I've got to pretend like this problem's not here. But the first key to a miracle is to admit we have an unsolvable problem. It says it like this in Mark 6, verse 34. When Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, so he began teaching them. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came and said, this is a remote place. Send the people away so they can go buy something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said, that would take eight months of a man's wages. 
That feels like an unsolvable problem to me. Again, reading the Gospels, I don't think the disciples had a money bag with eight months' wages in it to go and buy food, even if they could. How many of you, there's an unsolvable problem in your life? You know, I, I, I've walked with the Lord for a number of years now, and as I get older, that number gets bigger, and here's the thing, I need as many miracles today as I ever have. We don't stop needing miracles when we follow Jesus. In fact, sometimes we start to see more and more areas of our life where we go, only Jesus can fix that problem. Only Jesus can be the solution. Only a miracle is going to solve this problem. Now, there are other areas of our life. Those are solvable areas. And I think we need to be careful. We're not asking God to do a miracle when he's trying to give us a plan, okay? Let me give you some examples. I don't pray that God would take the 20 extra pounds off of my waist. I make a plan to exercise and diet, right? Hence, the 20 pounds is still there, in case you were wondering. Yes, it is. There's no TV adding 10 pounds up here, right? There's some times where it's like, okay, I could pray, but the reality is I know I just need to put a plan in place. And sometimes we're praying, God, you see our finances, and he's saying, yes, get a budget and stick to it. And sometimes there's those times where we say, God, you see my spouse, I need a miracle. And he says, yes, take her on a date. Remind her that you love her. Love her more than you love yourself. And then the miracle will be there. And we need to be careful that we're not asking God, God, here's a, I need a miracle in an area where he's saying, I've given you a plan to start walking it out. We're talking the areas where it's not just, hey, God, I need to lose 20 pounds. It's, hey, God, the doctor's report was cancer. And I need a miracle for that. This morning, I was talking to a gentleman who comes to our church who recently got that diagnosis and later this week he's going to go have the scans and they're going to be doing scans and then the treatment and everything else and his attitude was still one of I need a miracle but God I love you in the midst of it that's very different that's an unsolvable problem those are the areas where we say God I need you in my life the disciples' response or the disciples' approach to this unsolvable problem, though, shows us three typical responses we have when we have an unsolvable problem in our life. The first one is this. We procrastinate. This is me 100%. I am a procrastinator. I am the guy in school who spent more time figuring out exactly when I could start doing my homework to get it done on time than just doing my homework. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I'm wired that way, but I love a deadline, right? And so we procrastinate. And I love this part. It says this, it was near the end or it was late in the day. The disciples knew a crowd was gathering. At no point any of them had the foresight or the forethought. And all of a sudden it's late in the day. And all of a sudden the problem is suddenly unmanageable and unsolvable because it's late in the day. And we procrastinate sometimes. We, we often, in our procrastination in bringing things to God, it's because we're, we're just talking about it. We're trying to figure it out on our own. But we procrastinate in bringing our problems to God. What problem in your life are you waiting to bring to Jesus? And let me ask you this question. Why are you waiting to bring it to him? Now here's the good news about it. The good news is that it's never, to bring, never too late to bring your need to Jesus. And we're gonna see as we continue walking through this story that it wasn't, Jesus didn't go, oh, you're right guys, it's too late in the day, I can't do a miracle. It's never too late, but 
How much better is it if we just bring the problem to Jesus when we first identify it, when we first recognize it as a need? The second thing the disciples do, and I don't know about you, but I've done this, is we pass the buck. We try and lay the blame on someone else. In fact, this is often because we want the problem gone rather than actually solved. You see, the disciples came to Jesus and they came to him late and rather than saying, Jesus, here's a problem, would you solve it? They said, Jesus, here's a problem, send it away. The people are hungry and there's no food. Well, just send them away. In other words, Jesus, we don't want to have to think about it. We don't want to have to deal with it. Send them away. This is their problem. They deal with it. And we try and pass the buck. We try and pass the blame. We try and pass the responsibility for even trusting Jesus for a miracle onto somebody else. And then Jesus' response to the disciples is wonderful. He says, okay, yeah, tell the people it's their fault. No. He looks at his disciples and he says, no, 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 no. In my mind, Jesus did the finger wagging. They left that out of the story because he did it at them. But in my mind, he did the finger wagging. No, 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 no. You solve this problem. Don't send them away, you solve it. And I think Jesus wants to say to us, if there's a miracle you need in your life, or there's a miracle you need uh, in a friend's life or a coworker's life, Jesus wants to look and say, no, 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 don't send it away, you solve it. And the third thing we see the disciples do, and again, I think we do a lot ourselves, is we worry. We worry. Worry is prayer when you're talking to yourself and not God. That's all it is. You see, faith is seeing the situation and seeing God in it. Worry is seeing the situation and not seeing God in it. And when we see God in it, then we pray. We say, oh God, that's what you can do. You should go and do that. But when we don't see God in it, we worry. And we begin talking to ourselves. What are we going to do about this? The disciples' response uh, there's 5,000 people. It will take eight months' wages to feed them. And this sums up, I think, some of the things that we, that, we, uh, that we ourselves worry about. God, it's too much and it's too many. We're talking to the God of the universe. And yet sometimes we say, God, it's too much and it's too many. God, it's too much work to save my marriage. God, it's going to take too many uh, sacrifices to have my finances get in the right order. God, it's too much work. And God says the same thing. He says, okay, you solve it. And so the first thing we have to do is not procrastinate, not pass the buck, not worry, but just admit, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have an unsolvable problem in my life. Let me ask you this question. Has God ever asked you to do something impossible? The answer is, if you have an unsolvable problem in your life, if you have something that you are trusting God for, if you have an area of your life, whether it's health or finances or relationships, and it might not even be just yours, it might be my mom's sick or my uncle's work had just lost his job or my friend's marriage is falling apart. I'm not just talking that in you, your own life, but in your world, is there something that you see as an unsolvable problem? Because if there is, that is God asking you to do the impossible. That is God saying, hey, don't just ignore your friend's failing marriage. You solve the problem. Don't just ignore that uh, friend's health report. You solve the problem. 
So how do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. How do we, if you will, partner with God when he looks at us and says, you solved the problem? Because I'll give you the spoiler alert, by the way. The disciples solved the problem with Jesus. Now, it's, not an un, it's, a, it's a very unfair load. It's Jesus does 99% of the work, but they do the 1%. And it starts with this. And this is our second point in your worship guide. The second key to a miracle is give God what little you already have. You see, the disciples came to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's what we don't have. And how often do we do that? How often do we look at what we don't have? Jesus, we don't have enough money. Jesus, I don't have enough love in my heart. Jesus, I don't have enough patience. Jesus, I don't have enough health. Jesus, I don't have enough energy. Jesus, I don't have enough people around me. Or sometimes, Jesus, I don't have enough time to myself because I have too many people around me, right? And Jesus asked the simple question of the disciples, and I think he asked it of us today too. What do you have? Don't look at the money you don't have. What do you have? And we take the little bit that we have and we give it to God. In Mark chapter six, verse 38, it says, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So go and take stock. Remember what you do have. That's why we do communion, to remember, oh yeah, I'm saved. If nothing else, I have Jesus. But there's probably more. So they went and they saw, and they came back and they said, five small loaves of bread and two fish, right? Sounds like my recent trip to Valdez, two fish. (laughs) I didn't even have any bread with it, but, and it was this little boy's lunch. And what I love in this is that there's no dessert, because even back then, little boys ate dessert first. So all he's left with is the loaves and fishes. And the disciples bring it to Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. In a crowd of 5,000 people, you think he was the only one with food in his pocket? If I said to us here, hey, we've got to you know, feed a few people, how many of you would pull out a granola bar or a snack? I know there's a lot of moms that got snacks in the bags. We'd be able to get a little bit more than that. And here's the thing. I believe there were probably people withholding what they did have from Jesus. And you know what? They didn't become the hero in this story. The little boy did, because he said, I'll give what little I have to God. You see, God often starts the miracles with the little we have if we will give it to him, if we will bring it to him. God, I don't have much patience for my children, but here's the little bit I do have. God, I don't know why, but I don't have as much love for my spouse as maybe I once did, but here's the little that I do have, and I bring it to you. God, I don't have much health left. There might be moments when I don't feel very strong, but here are the good moments, and I bring them to you. So we take stock of what we have, and we bring the little that we have to Jesus. In John's version of this story, there's an interesting insight that John adds, and it's this, and this is John chapter six, verse six. It says, Jesus asked this only to test them. In other words, he said, hey, Go find out how much you have only to test them because he already had in mind what he was going to do. So here's the thing. Jesus didn't need the loaves and fishes to make more loaves and fishes. Jesus doesn't need your $10 to pay the rest of your bills, but he wants it. And he's testing you. It's a test of saying, do you have daring faith? Will you bring it to me? Will you trust me? Will you, and I love this part, will you partner with me? Will you bring what you have to me? And I find that fascinating, that Jesus, he already knows. 
In my mind, I'm like, Jesus probably got a couple of fish behind his back. He's just like conjuring them up and then making them disappear. And then make, but he wants to partner with his disciples. He wants them to see what he can do and he wants them to be part of the experience because he wants them to experience daring faith. And that's why he says, hey, bring the little that you have. And so if you're going in here, you don't understand, Pastor Rob, the little that I have is almost nothing. That's okay, bring it. Bring it to God. Bring it to him and say, here's the little bit that I have. Don't focus on what you don't have. Find out what you do. And then you bring it to him. And our third point here is we put it all in the hands of Jesus. We put it all in the hands of Jesus. And here's, the disciples didn't then hold the fish and say, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do with it? They say, here, Jesus, we put it in your hands. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get in the habit of saying, here, Jesus, I put it in your hand. And I'm still holding on to it. No, no, Jesus, it's all yours. Go ahead, it's in your hand. And he's like, well, you need to let go of it. And I'm like, no, we're gonna hold it together. No, that's not how this works. Put it all into the hands of Jesus. It goes on and says this, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. I love that phrase, he blessed the food. You see, we need to bring the little we have and give it to Jesus so he can bless it. We need to bring the little bit of money we have so he can bless it. We need to bring the little bit of health that we have so he can bless it. And then it says he broke the food. In other words, he did it in a way that was basically, he's saying, hey, I'm going to now take what you've given me and I'm gonna do with it what I see needs to happen with it. Now, I personally would have thought, Jesus, everyone should just get their whole own loaf. You don't need to break it. But he says, no, no, I'm gonna break the bread. And then he begins handing it to them. And I, I just, I wonder what the disciples were thinking. They would come to Jesus, get a fish and you know, a little tuna sandwich, and they would walk out, 5,000 people. It's a big field. They would walk out, they would give it to someone, they'd come back and he'd be like, here's another one. And every time they came back, there was another one. And every time they came back, there was another one. And I imagine the little boy going, look, I might not be great at math, but this is not adding up. I know how many fish I had. I know how many loaves I gave you. And Jesus says, yeah, but in my hands, this keeps going. And there's a principle here that it's not about how much we put in Jesus' hands. It's about trusting it into Jesus' hands. I got a friend his name was Matthias, and you're not going to meet him, so it's fine that you know that. But there was a time when Matthias needed a large financial miracle in his life. And every time Matthias would come and tell me about this, he would have a Coca-Cola in his hand. And he would be sitting there sipping his Coca-Cola and saying, I need God to provide a miracle. I need thousands of dollars. And finally, one day I asked him, hey, did someone give you that Coke? And he said, no, I bought it. Like, duh. And I said, wait, you're telling me that you're trusting God for thousands of dollars and yet every day you're spending a couple bucks on a Coke. What do you think that says to God? Hey God, I need money from you. I'm gonna take my money and I'm gonna put it in the hands of the Coca-Cola company while I'm trusting you for a miracle. I said, you need to stop buying Coke and you need to take that $1.50, $2, however much it is every day, and you need to put that somewhere and say, God, I'm putting this dollar into your hands. I need thousands, but I'm putting this dollar into your hands. And you know what? Within a matter of weeks, 
He had the thousands of dollars in. And then he went back to drinking Cokes again. Because he could at that point. But there was just this little moment. It wasn't a lot. The math doesn't add up. But when we put it in Jesus' hands, he figures it out. In fact, the next point, the last thing we're going to look at today is that when we put it in Jesus' hands, we have to do so expecting God to multiply it. In other words, expect God to solve your problem. Expect God to take your little bit and make it more than enough. It says he broke the bread and kept handing it out to the point that actually at the end of it, it says there was leftovers. The little boy went home with more than he brought that day. Imagine him trying to explain that to his mom. No, really, mom, Jesus multiplied it, right? How many of you moms are like, "Mm mm-hmm, you're grounded, dad will deal with you when you get home, right? But they had leftovers. There was more than enough. And so this story shows us that if we will admit there's an unsolvable problem, bring that to Jesus. Say, Jesus, here's the little bit I have. I'm going to put it in your hands. I'm going to trust you with it. And I am going to expect, which is daring faith, you will multiply it to more than enough. And I love this story. It says it this way. In Mark chapter 6, 42, 43, everyone ate and had enough. Afterwards, they collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. Do we have that expectation that when we hand it to God, it's going to be more than enough? That's daring faith. Daring faith lets go of it fully and says, Jesus, I expect you to do something with this. I heard a story similar to this one. A colleague of mine talked about how they were on an outreach at the Atlanta Atlanta Olympics in 1996. And Atlanta in that Olympics, there was a heat wave and it was super hot. And so one of the things they did was they just set up a little table and as an outreach, they just handed out Gatorades. Just cups of Gatorade. Not like, you know, to the athletes as they're running by or anything fancy like that. Just to people in Atlanta who are like, it's hot and I'm walking from one event to the next. And they just handed out Gatorades. And then one day the lady said, we got down to our last Gatorade. And I pulled it out of the cooler and I poured it into the cups and I felt like God said, okay, reach back into the cooler. And she said, and I waited because I thought, well, that's crazy. I know I just pulled the last one out. And she said before she opened it, she had this wrestling match of going, what was I expecting to find? And she opened it up and there was another Gatorade. And she pulled it out and she poured. And there was another lady who was just reaching back and putting the cups on the table and handing them out to people. And they did that for a few more hours. And every time she said, there was this wrestle when I knew I was getting close to the end of the bottle. I was gonna have to open up the cooler and I had to check in my heart, was there expectation that there would be another Gatorade? And she said, by the end of the day, I was opening that cooler up with nothing but expectation that God is gonna do this. And so if we will give God the little, then we will put it in his hands and we will expect him to do something with it. The expectation will become easier and easier and easier. And God will show up because God responds to daring faith. You see, here's the point in the big lesson. Remember, we talked about how Jesus does miracles to teach us something, to reveal something to us. And it's this, God likes to do miracles through people. I got a lot of people in my world that need a miracle. And I want to be the little boy with two fish and five loaves of bread in their life. And I hope you do too. I want to be the little boy that says, Jesus, here's all I have, but would you use it 
to be the answer to this miracle? Would you use it to solve what looks like an unsolvable problem? This is daring faith. And so I don't know what you have, but I want to say in the hands of Jesus, it is more than enough. It is more than enough. Would you rise? And we're going to end with worship. And as we do, I want to ask you to take stock. I want to ask you to think about what you have. I want to ask you to think about not what you don't have. And maybe you're in here and you need a miracle and you need a health miracle. You go, I don't have energy. I don't have strength. What do you have? Maybe you're in here and you need a financial miracle and you're going, I don't have enough money to pay the bills. I don't have enough money for what I know is coming. What do you have? And maybe you're in here and there's a relationship that needs a miracle. And maybe you say, I don't have the patience. I don't have the grace. I don't have the love that I need for that. What do you have? Because if there is an unsolvable problem in your life, Jesus is looking at you and saying, you solve it. Now he's saying that, hey, we'll solve it. But it starts with us looking at what we have and saying, Jesus, I'm gonna take this and trust you. So as we worship, as we close, would you just take these few moments to just say, Jesus, show me what I have and show me how to put it in your hands. What a fantastic service. Be sure to stay in touch by following us on social media so you can stay up to date with all that is happening at True North Church.